Welcome, listeners. The court was back in session this week. For an update, we will hear from our court reporter towards the end of this episode. But first, we will discuss what is probably the most gruesome thing that came out of Syria during the course of this chronic conflict, the Caesar photos. A quick note of caution, what we will discuss on this week's episode might be disturbing to some listeners, as we will talk about pretty raw accounts, photos of torture and mutilated bodies. Please take care when listening. Caesar and the Caesar photos have been a recurring topic in the trial. Caesar is the codename of a police photographer turned military photographer turned defector. He was tasked with taking photos of dead detainees. He later turned on his bosses and smuggled the photographs out of Syria. In Koblenz, the prosecutor, the lawyers, and the victims have mentioned the Caesar photos during some of the court sessions. And the judges actually projected one of the photos onto a large screen for everyone to see on the seventh day of this trial. Anyone sitting in court that day had to look at it. In this episode, we'll tell you the story behind the Caesar photos and their relevance to this trial as evidence, and what they mean to Syria and Syrians, including you, Karam. Yes, the content of these photos was highly shocking to me as a Syrian, also as a journalist. Towards the end of 2013, a few photos started making the rounds online with the claim that they had been leaked from the Syrian security apparatus. Gut-drenching photos of dead detainees, starved to death, tortured to death, looking pale and skinny, disfigured faces and gouged eyes, really gut-wrenching. While at the New York Times, my colleague and I started looking into these photos. What are they and who leaked them? We started calling everyone we thought might know about the process of smuggling them or involved in it. Eventually, we had a lead with a Syrian opposition figure based in Istanbul. We arranged to meet him and his team. Within a few days, we met him twice, at his office in an Istanbul suburb and at his apartment where we met a Syrian activist who gave us his name as Sami. He told us he was Caesar's confidant and helped him throughout the whole process. We talked and negotiated showing us the photos, all of them. A few days later, in early 2014, we received a call to go to some hotel in the same area. At that time, you would see a lot of Syrian opposition figures in and around that hotel. We sat in the empty library, and my colleague and I were given a laptop without a network connection. With each mouse click, the Syrian activist filled the screen of his laptop with a, a new portrait of horror. Commenting on the photos, he said, Every family has a photo album where they keep their happy memories. This is the album of the Syrian people. And then he left us. And there it was, thousands and thousands of photos, dead people, mostly men, but also women and children, all with number tags on their foreheads or inked directly on their bodies or faces. We were shocked and speechless. I had never seen anything like this before. And on that day, the reality of the Syrian conflict changed for me. I felt hopeless and defeated, and all I could think about at that moment was the perpetrators. Who would do that to a human being, and why? On that day, we silently browsed through over 53,000 photos for hours and hours. When I first saw these photos, they reminded me a lot of Nazi death camp photos, or the pictures from concentration camps in the former Yugoslavia, or the terrifying scenes from the Rwandan genocide. Just absolutely awful. But for you, Karam, the photos suddenly became much more personal just a few weeks ago. 
about six years after the first time you saw the Caesar photos. Yes, I'll explain that to you together with French journalist and author Garance Lecan. Uh, my name is Garance Lequin. I am a French uh, freelance journalist, and I've been working on the Middle East issues for the last 25 years. She spoke to Caesar and everyone involved for her book. In 2015, I wrote a book uh, in French language called Operation César at the Heart of the Syrian Death Machine. And the book was translated in several languages. And it was translated in English in 2018. I spoke with her and started by asking her, who is Caesar and what are the Caesar photos? Um, Caesar used to work for the Syrian regime as a photographer with the military police in Damascus. And actually, before the war, um, Caesar and his colleague had to photograph crime and accident scenes involving military person. I mean, suicide, traffic accident, house fires. They have to make photos and they had to go back to the office and write a report with the pictures. But when the first demonstrations appeared in March 2011, they were called to go to the morgue of the military hospital and they had to make photos of bodies of civilians, angels by bullets. And after some time, they had to make photos of bodies of person who have been detained in um, detention facilities. So what we call Caesar file, it's a file who contains thousands of official photos of dead detainees. The photo, it's, it's um, necked bodies. And uh, you can see that the, the person have been tortured or they died from hunger or from disease. You can see it's not a natural death. Often, the, the photos, I mean, it's a photo of each person, but you can find also photos with a number of bodies all together. And so you can imagine that there is a process of doing these photos and like a um, process of a death machine, in fact. When the bodies arrived at the hospital, they were marked with two numbers written on the sticky tape or in a felt tip directly on the forehead or on the chest. The first number was that of the detained himself. The second number, that of the branch of the intelligence service where he had been detained. And the pathologist, I mean, the, the guy who arrived earlier in the morning, will give him a third number. It's a number for his medical report. And uh, yes, I mean, the, so the, the bodies had three numbers. The Caesar files contain... 53,275 photos, but inside these photos, you have one file who contains 28,707 photos of people who died in detention. And these photos represent, in fact, 6,786 persons. Because, I mean, Cesar and his colleague, they had to make several photos of each person. So sometimes three photos, sometimes four photos. So in each photo, we see a number to identify the individual detainee, a number that relates to the branch that he or she was at, and a medical number given by the pathologist. And the actual exact number of dead detainees in those photos is 6,786. 
Yes, Caesar took multiple photos of every victim from different angles. This means that we are talking about just under 29,000 photographs taken in detention centers or military hospitals. There are more photographs, another 24,000 actually, but they show dead Syrian army soldiers, rebel fighters and civilian casualties, not civilians who died from torture. The total number of photos is around 53,000. Caesar took these photos between March 2011 and August 2013. So August 2013, that is when this military police photographer, later codenamed Caesar, defected. Um, Caesar, when um, he understood that he will have to make photos of these dead bodies of these detainees who have been killed inside uh, detention facilities, when he faced with the accumulation of bodies, he wanted to quit his job. He wanted to de- to defect, but he went to see Sami, and Sami, his activist, he was activist in the revolution, and Sami was a um, longtime family friend. He was a construction engineer, and the two men had uh, known each other for over 20 years. So Cesar went to see Sami, and he told him, I must, I must go. And Sami answered, no, you have to stay. Because Sami understood the value of these photos. I mean, this photo was the evidence of the crime of this regime. And so Sami and Cesar decided to collect these photos uh, over long months in order to accumulate as many photos as possible. And from spring 2011 up to summer 2013, Cesar copied thousands of them onto flash disk and he smuggles out of the military police headquarters hidden in his socks or his belt. And Sami took it and kept them on several hard drives. And in the summer 2013, Cesar felt uh, threatened. So he was smuggled from Syria by opponents of the regime, and Sami left the country too. It's really quite a thriller story how he slowly managed to smuggle those photos in batches out of his workplace and eventually take a dangerous journey to get himself and his family out of Syria. And let's just pause for a moment on the fact that this guy was just your average police photographer. Uh, traffic accidents and uh, crime scenes. And then he finds himself taking pictures of people who are tortured to death, day in and day out. Suddenly, that was his job. And it just begs the question, why was this even anyone's job? Why would the government document its own crimes? Okay, these questions, it's difficult to, to answer. It. I mean, there are several reasons. Maybe the first reason is Syria, I mean, the the regime used to record and file every bit of information, every document. I mean, the regime documents everything so that he will forget nothing. It's just like the communist era Eastern Bloc used to do it before. And so for 50 years, the military police have recorded details of accidental deaths involving the military. So after the start of the revolution and during the war, I mean, they kept doing the same routine, and Cesar was doing the same routine, but not only with soldiers, but also with detainees. Maybe the second reason why the regime archived such photos, it's the state suspects everyone. I mean, there is a culture of fear in the regime. No one trusts anyone. And the guy who obeys orders must show that he has obeyed them. So he must convince his superior for fear of being arrested 
and put in jail without trial. So the archive and the documents. And maybe in addition, we can find a third reason. The photo have been used by the intelligence services to inform families of the fate of their loved ones without having to produce an actual mutilated body. So they will have a death certificate saying that the death was due to natural causes like heart attack. But to have this death certificate, you have to be sure that the guy is dead. So the photos will show that the guy is dead. But of course, the death of prisoners due to hunger or torture is secret. But the event is recorded and you have a death certificate about it. So the last reason, maybe it's because the security services and Bashar al-Assad himself, they have a feeling of impunity. They couldn't imagine that one day they will be called to account for their abuses. They never thought that these photos will get out and be seen by the world. So we don't know exactly why uh, the regime archived such photos, but we have several reasons. So maybe it's a mix or all of these reasons, maybe only one reason. We, we don't know exactly, but we suppose. So Garance here discusses four possible reasons for the regime to document these crimes like that. One is the military recorded, quote unquote, accidental deaths already before the war, and then continued doing so after the uprising, but not just with soldiers, but also dead detainees. Then the second reason is what she calls the culture of fear, the regime controlling its own state agents, making sure that they actually followed orders. The third reason she mentions is that the photos allow the Syrian authorities to actually issue a death certificate to the families without having to return the body. And the last reason she mentions is impunity. Apparently, the Assad regime thought the photos would never be leaked. So we have all these reasons, and they have been mentioned before, also in other historical contexts, right? Garance compared it to former communist Eastern Bloc states, but I'm also reminded of the mountain of paperwork produced by Nazi Germany. But still, despite all these explanations and reasons, I just find it totally mind-blowing that regimes commit monstrous, massive crimes and then document them for tedious bureaucratic reasons, mostly. It still seems so paradoxical to me. Wouldn't they be better off just doing it in the shadows and not registering any of it? One would think that, right? It completely undermines this air of secrecy that these regimes operate in. And of course, the Syrian government is now denying their authenticity. When President Bashar al-Assad was asked in a 2017 Yahoo News interview about the Caesar photos, he replied by asking, Who verified the pictures? Who they verified that they're not edited and photoshopped and so on? As far as he's concerned, they are fake, photoshopped, doctored. However, the photos have actually been verified multiple times. The photos have been verified by legal and forensic experts. The first time it was in January 2014 by the British law firm Carter Rock and Co. Three war crimes lawyers interviewed Caesar, analyzed the photos, and they claimed that the regime practices torture on a large scale on its prisoner. And after Caesar uh, went to Washington in July 2014, He gave photos to the FBI, and one year later, in June 2015, 
um, the FBI issued a five-page report and declared that the photos have not been manipulated and they show real people and events. So considering the fact that the photos have been verified, I'm wondering what is the value of the photos as evidence in court, for example, now in Koblenz? Even Assad himself is questioning this. The most important thing, if you take these photos to any court in your country, mm-hmm. could they convict any criminal regarding this? Could they tell you what, what this crime, who committed? We will link to the full interview by Yahoo News with Bashar al-Assad from 2017 in the show notes. Obviously, as a lawyer dealing with these topics in my work, I find this question intriguing. If these photos can be used as evidence in court, the evidentiary value would be absolutely priceless because you can actually see the dead bodies. You can almost see the crime. That is quite unusual for these types of international trials. But that's a big if. We don't know yet if the court in Koblenz will accept the photos as evidence. We also don't know if the content of the photos will actually prove to be relevant for the specific charges against Anwar R. and Iyad A. Here's what we do know, though. Garance already mentioned this. In early 2014, a team of very well-respected legal and forensic experts analyzed the photos, interviewed the man they would later give the codename Caesar, and came to the following conclusion, and I quote here, Caesar's evidence was reliable and could safely be acted upon in any subsequent judicial proceedings. And here's another quote from the conclusion of that report. The inquiry team is satisfied that upon the material it has reviewed, there is clear evidence capable of being believed by a tribunal of fact in a court of law of systematic torture and killing of detained persons by the agents of the Syrian government. Such evidence would support findings of crimes against humanity against the current Syrian regime. Such evidence could also support findings of war crimes against the current Syrian regime. This report was shared with the United Nations Security Council in April 2014, so it became public then and was circulated widely. It's still available on the UN website. We will include a link to it in the show notes, but beware, there are really gory descriptions and sample photos in there. If after all this, the German prosecutor decides to submit the photos as evidence, the Koblenz court will be the first court to test their legal value. Whatever the outcome, it will set an important precedent for trials to come. To get some more insights on the legal elements of the Caesar story, we talked to Patrick Kroker. Patrick is one of the lawyers representing victims in Koblenz. He also leads the Syria Justice and Accountability work at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, ECCHR. We asked him how the photos ended up with the German authorities after Caesar smuggled them out of the country. These images have been then given to the authorities in Liechtenstein, uh, which then kind of distributed them uh, on request uh, to other to other prosecution authorities, uh, yeah, worldwide basically, including the German ones. And and so in Germany they were in the in the focus of um, the investigative work that was being that was being done. And it was already announced by then uh, that that each and every picture 
was being examined by medical forensic specialists and by data analyst specialists uh, for building cases and, and, and to be part of, of case files. And um, of course, it's a very difficult uh, task, but it's, uh, it's, it's evidence-wise um, super important because um, uh, they, they will be presented really as evidence of a killing of a specific person. Uh, whereas normally in law, uh, you know, to, 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 to prove a killing without having the body, we all know that from, uh, from TV, basically, it's really important. Uh, and uh, we will probably uh, never, uh, never see these bodies. And, uh, and even the families won't because nobody knows where they are, etc. Um, but here, this can be the proof. But for that, of course, uh, there must be a, a medical forensic specialist being able to, to, to examine uh, the, the photo to make sure, yes, that person is dead. And I can say maybe this and that uh, about the potential causes of death, etc. Um, and it's, it's a very cumbersome task. It takes a lot of time. Uh, we must uh, also think about the vicarious trauma that can uh, that that can be triggered by by looking by, by having that as your job to do that uh, eight hours a day is not even possible. So they had also reduced working hours on these images, etc. Reduced working hours, vicarious trauma. These are also topics that we deal with here on the podcast team. I was thinking about it just last night during the afternoon. I looked back at some of the gruesome Caesar photos and told myself that I would do something fun and relaxing afterwards to, to compensate. And then in the evening, I ended up watching a film that also showed pretty terrible scenes of torture. Not smart, not good for the soul. We all need to be aware of this and give ourselves breaks. Anyways, back to Patrick. We wanted to know what he thought the Caesar photos would mean in terms of evidence generally, and for the Copeland's trial specifically. His reply was a mix between optimism and caution. The, the evidentiary weight of these images, it is enormous um, uh, because it's not only proof in my eyes of, 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 of these thousands of victims of each and every individual killing linked or, 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 or linkable to a uh, detention f facility that is that is reflected in the number, etc. Uh, there are other uh, information we get from that because there is another number, which is the detainee number, that might also appear in other files. Uh, it also gives uh, is evidence of the systemacy of these crimes, uh, the the scale. Um, so it's very very important in in many many ways. Given this trial. We, speaking about the trial of Anwar, there is still some, um, so, some, some insecurity attached to that. Uh, uh, how far they, uh, they, will be, they will be used um, for showing individual killings in Al-Khatib branch. Uh, because um, the, the time when these images were taken extended the time of Anwar's tenure, so to say, in Al-Khatib branch. After September 2012, Caesar continued to work and to add uh, images to this, to, to this volume of images that he then handed over. Can we trace back which image directly stems from what time? I don't know. If we can't, then I see the problem that in dubio pro reo, as, as, as it says in Latin, uh, we might need to basically always assume the best case for the accused that all images from Al-Khatib were taken after September 2012 
and, and therefore after uh, Anwar had left office. But this is uh, one of the open questions that, uh, that will be uh, determined um, throughout the, the trial, I would say. Thank you, Patrick. We are very curious to see how the Caesar photos will continue to play a role in the Koblenz trial and beyond. The photos came to light in the end of 2013, but according to Garons, they have not resulted in that much concrete action. Uh, yes, it was a shock for a lot of people, but in fact, I mean, um, these photos spur outrage, but not action. Because this file contains photos of detainees who died under torture, starvation, or untreated disease in the regime's prisons. And these photos are very disturbing. I mean, they are inhuman. You would like to believe that these images are a thing of the past. And we would like them in black and white, but they are in color. And they are today, they are from now. Garons, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Karan. Shukran, wa salama. Before 2013, families of people who disappeared were in the dark about the fate of their loved ones. Where were they taken and what was happening to them? The Caesar photos answered some of these questions. They shone a light on the darkest, most secret part of the Assad regime's practices. They confirmed people's worst fears. Up until today, families come across the faces of their loved ones in the Caesar photos. I have come across photos of two people from my hometown and one of a distant relative. And just a few weeks ago, my aunt sent me a photo leaked by Caesar showing a young man dead and starved, and she was sure it was her son. And I was sure it was him, my cousin. He had the same eyebrows and he had the same eyelashes. We were positive it was him. We do not know anything about him since the end of 2012. He went to grab some food, but never came back. She saw that photo and cried for three days. I contacted Ibrahim Al-Qasim, a member of Caesar Files Group, and arranged for a call with my missing cousin's sister. He found for us the other photos of this dead detainee. And after many questions about body marks and surgeries done or not, facial hair and other physical description, it was not him. And I was relieved it was not him. But also my mind was stuck on the young guy in the photos. I mean, who is he? And did his family identify him or is he still a number? My cousin, Ahmad, was a friend of mine. I looked up to him and we were close. He might be in another photo that we haven't seen yet. He might be alive, we don't know, but he has been missing for 2,819 days. I'm really sorry for you, for your aunt and your family, and well, let's hope for the best. Thank you, Fritz. It's time to hear from our court reporter from Koblenz, Hannah Elhitami. This week in court was dedicated to survivors, uh, former detainees of Branch 251, the first witness's description of Branch 251 was actually much less gruesome than uh, other statements we had heard before. So yes, he did say that there were overcrowded cells, that when he arrived, he was pushed into the cell and he fell onto bodies, not onto the floor. Um, but other than that, he said that he never saw any dead bodies. He never saw any blood. He didn't see anyone with major injuries in his cell. Um, but in the end, there was some confusion as to whether he had actually been in the branch uh, 251 <clears throat> because he said yeah it's called Al-Khatib branch and it's uh, also called the Air Force 
detention branch. And as everyone in the courtroom knows by now, that's not the case. So branch 251 belongs to the General Secret Service, not the Air Force Secret Service. So in the end, there was actually some confusion um, whether he might have been in a different branch. Even though the topic of his statement was obviously not funny, uh, he had a quite humorous way of talking about some of the points. For example, he was asked whether upon his release, he asked what was the reason for his release from Branch 251. And he was like, uh, well, no, I didn't ask that. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Something along those lines. And um, it sounded quite funny to many and w people were laughing. And Anwar R was actually laughing so much that he was hiding his, his mouth behind his hand. I don't know why exactly he found that so funny, but maybe um, from a common understanding that in Syria, when you when you're released from prison, you you get you get out of there. You don't ask for reasons. You don't ask questions. The witness on Thursday gave a much less humorous statement. He talked about the horrible uh, detention conditions in Branch 251. He saw people die in the cell and being taken out of the cell. He himself received so much whipping on the soles of his feet during interrogation that he had a very severe infection on his uh, foot. And at some point, he actually had to cry during his testimony. And his wife, who was in the audience, was crying as well. So the court had to take a break of 10 minutes for the witness to go outside and calm down. That's it from us this week. We want to thank you all for listening. Please keep sending us your questions, comments, and ideas. We want to hear from you. And if you are a fan of the podcast, please consider donating via Patreon. Doesn't matter which amount, uh, everything helps. The link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, and before we go, we want to take a moment to thank the nonprofit organization Adalmas for their help circulating our recent Arabic episode. Adalmas's aim is to seek justice for the victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity through legal means. They seek to identify the perpetrators of these crimes through their online platform to present them to national and international courts. They make every effort to protect the privacy of those who provide them with information and to guarantee the confidentiality of the information that is shared with them. Have a look at their website and the Facebook group if you want. You can find them in the show notes. Next week, we'll be back with an episode about the latest developments in Koblenz. See you then. See you. Branch 251 is created, produced, and hosted by Karam Shumali and Fritz Streif. Production assistance by me, Pauline Peek. Hanna Alidami is our court reporter. This podcast is listener-supported. You can help keeping it going by subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing it with your friends, and by becoming a patron of the show via Patreon. You can find a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. Thank you for your support.